Well, good morning. It's wonderful that you got up early enough on a Saturday morning to be here to listen to the Word of God being explained. I thank God for this privilege and opportunity, and I thank God for you and for your interest in His things. We are living in difficult times compared to other times that we've been through more recently. Just thinking about um, a well-known work of fiction. Uh, I am afraid these days to you know, throw out the names of books or movies and stuff because most of the people are not familiar with because I'm 50 years back right? Outdated. But the tale of two cities, uh, uh, you're probably, many of you are familiar with it, right? Begins was the best of times, it was the worst of times. But I was thinking about the tale of two cities from the point of view of what it points out as probably the most powerful force operative in human society. Underlying the theme of the tale of two cities, is the love of a man for a woman, a love that was unrequited, but a love that leads him to give his own life to rescue that woman's husband. That's really the Sydney Carton uh, in the Tale of Two Cities. Love is a very, very powerful, powerful thing in life. Even the Song of Solomon uh, points that out. Even if you give the whole world for love, uh, it would be worthless, considered uh, uh, inadequate. And I was thinking about my own um, growth appreciation of the gospel. Uh, when uh, I grew up, somebody asked me about my background. So I grew up really uh, in a setting where the Bible was believed and, and taught and read. Uh, where my, my parents were believers, grandparents, by the grace of God, were believers. And I, I grew up actually with the Bible. And the early lesson about the gospel is that I'm a sinner. All sinners are going to hell. I need to be saved. And it is only possible through the Lord Jesus that he died in our place. The gospel, you go to the Lord's uh, supper Sunday after Sunday, you cannot not understand the gospel. Uh, we declare again and again, Christ died for sinners. He became our substitute. He took our sin upon him. He paid for it. And you cannot pay for it. He did it for you. You receive him and God imputes his righteousness to you. All of this very clear. And I, I, I understood. So I, I knew this. I got to do this. and I got to receive Jesus into my life. And one day, you know, I don't know, for some reason, I don't have a lot of memory of going to Sunday school, uh, partly because uh, it was only a short period, and then I was sent away to boarding school um, for a good thing, uh, but there was no Sunday school or youth group or anything for seven years of my life. Uh, so, but one day, the Sunday school teacher kind of confronted me, saying, have you received the Lord? Are you saved? And I didn't want to answer him. Uh, it seemed kind of beneath my dignity not to have been saved yet, you know. Um, I should have been already saved by, by the age of nine. So anyway, I escaped from uh, answering him directly, but I found the need 
realize that I got to do this. I got to ask Jesus to save me. And there's more to that story. I won't take time on that. Um, but <clears throat> it is many, many years later that I began to appreciate the love of God. I appreciated my need. <clears throat> I appreciated the fact that I'm a sinner. There's no, no debate on that count. I was a sinner, fallen short of the glory of God. I know the, the error of my ways. My conscience convicts me about things I have done wrong. So those, those I don't, did not need to be persuaded. <clears throat> but coming to appreciate the love of God is something that happened over a long time and still is happening. I think our greatest error is not appreciating how truly, deeply, perfectly loving God is. And it's First John that declares to us that God is love. <clears throat> and and as, as I had an opportunity to mention yesterday, this is also the, the great lie that is put forth before the world in its current state of corruption. All blame is put at the feet of God. We don't want to take any blame. <clears throat> we don't want to describe game, uh, blame to the, the evil thing that we listen to most of the time. I'm speaking about the world in general. We like to blame God for everything. <clears throat> but this morning, um, again, what I'm doing is a little out of my normal style. <clears throat> I kind of take pride in being an exegete, uh, one who interprets the Bible, and an expositor. And we are doing something more topical today, but I'm doing it intentionally because we even familiar things we need to appreciate at a, at a deeper level. And so it is intentional on my part to do this. I have to tell you, I've at least worked with two groups. One group of students at Emmaus, <clears throat> uh, they get to preach in student chapel. So four years ago, um, there was preacher's club, and I was their coach <clears throat> to preach through First John. And then another group at our home assembly, uh, sort of a preacher's training club where we work through First John. So I work through First John expositorily, um, but I want to bring up some thematic uh, things for our deeper appreciation. So let me begin with a review <clears throat> of the meaning of fellowship that I, I stated to you uh, last night. <clears throat> Excuse me. Fellowship in the New Testament actually refers to relationship at, at a basic fundamental level. It's not just interaction only. The interactions result from the reality underlying that relationship. It's relationship at a fundamental level, characterized and evidenced by sharing and motivated by love. And a believer in Christ has real connections with the living God, or we have fellowship with God, and then we have fellowship with others who have come into that relationship with God. We can represent it like this. And, you know, we won't even have time to talk about fellowship within the Godhead. It's really something worth talking about. Um, the, the, the unity and love within the persons of the Godhead, uh, we won't uh, get into that this weekend. Uh, but there's, uh, we have relationship with the triune God, and in fact, as we proceed, we'll see that each person of the Godhead is involved with us. If you are a believer, each person of the Godhead is involved with you. Each person of the Godhead is involved in your being born again. Isn't that an amazing thing? 
Sometimes we have these wrong ideas that God in the Old Testament, the Father is somewhat legal and fierce and strict, and Jesus is kindness and mercy and compassion. Well, all persons of the Godhead are equally holy and just and righteous, and, and, and sin is abhorrent to all persons of the Godhead, and all persons of the God, there's only one God, the sh- that all, the three persons share the same nature, and they are equally loving, <clears throat> equally merciful, equally gracious, equally compassionate. So a believer, we are brought into this wonderful relationship with the triune God and with one another. Um, my um, wife was not particularly impressed with the practicality of the message last evening. She listened. Um, <clears throat> And I said, there's going to be more of the same this morning. And she said, well, tell them to come in the evening then. So you all come back in the evening. <clears throat> so um, the, we are brought into fellowship with the living God and with one another by God's grace. So um, our theme verse here in uh, John, 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. I want to talk about then many things that are familiar to us in regard to our relationship to God and what God has done to us through the gospel. And I would invite you then to think and reflect a little bit more on this. Think about this. God, it's one of the fundamental things about the gospel is that God has called us. God has called us. From whatever situation I was in, out of the blindness, the darkness, the confusion, the groping about without knowing what is good or bad, God called me, and he called me into his own kingdom and glory. So I've been taken out of my previous set of affiliations and associations, and God says, come into my kingdom, come into my glory, be a participant in the things that I want to provide you. I was not born in this country. I was born in India, southern India. Came here in my late teens, lived in Minnesota. Before I went to Indiana and then to Michigan and to California and back to Michigan and now in Iowa, right? After coming from India, Uh, Many years later, I waited a long time, I became a a naturalized citizen of the United States. Um, When I did that, or well before I did that, once I decided I was living in this country, very truly my loyalties changed. Now I remember I had a birthday that my family wanted to celebrate a few years ago. And they, the kids came up and said, and they were thinking about the superheroes on TV, and asked me, what is your favorite superpower? I said, the USA. <laughs> when I became an American, I truly became an American. I, I root for this country. I want my nation to do, be better and more prosperous than everything else. So let everyone else worry about their problem. They should also want to be good, but I am part of this nation. Now, I don't forget, though, that as a Christian, as a believer in the Lord, God has given me higher loyalties and identities. So this is one thing that we ought not to forget. But for earthly purposes, this is my nation, and I want to be loyal to it. Now, what God has done 
is that he has taken out of the earthly loyalties as our primary loyalties and our sinful affiliations and called us into his own kingdom and glory. It's a whole new framework to operate in. A whole different way to think about myself. Who am I? What am I about? What's my purpose? What should I go about doing? These questions are answered by God's calling. He has called me into His own kingdom and glory. And this is now the new set of priorities and connections and affiliations and relationships that govern my conduct. But it's part of God's fellowship with God, right? God says, come into my kingdom. I want to share with you my glory. In fact, you know how amazing that is? That the things that you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, have to look forward to is to be conformed to the image of the glorified Son of God. Our citizenship is in heaven from where we await our Savior who will change our lowly bodies into the likeness of His own glorious body. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's a new identity. It's a new connection. And the important thing about being a Christian is that these things should be real in my thinking. The gospel is not that, okay, um, oh yeah, yeah, I know, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven because long ago I asked Jesus into my heart. Maybe I forget about it most of the time, but you know, if somebody threatens me with the possibility of going to hell, I have this thing to remember. Now, that's very different from being really saved and coming into a knowledge of God. What God has done for us through the gospel is truly, truly uh, stupendous. It's amazing. It's infinite. It's wonderful. It's beyond our comprehension. So he has called us into fellowship through calling us into his kingdom and his own glory. This is one important. He has called us. Let's think about being born and birth. Um, coming to Christ, we speak of in terms of being born again. Right? If there is fellowship, the, the, our, our base network of fellowship is our family, correct? Father, mother, siblings. So the family provides us our foundational, basic level of fellowship. And God has brought us into his family. He has, in fact, become our father. He has cost us, and this is uh, what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born. Very literally, the other day I was using this word and, and somebody asked, What is begot? That's what it means. He became our father. He begot us. He became our father. He fathered us. Well, now we understand that. God the Father fathered me, made me his child through the new birth which he effected in my soul. God has truly become my father, and I am his child. Now, how can I forget this? How could I live 
oblivious to this truth. I would be most insulted if my children ever forgot that I was their father. And rightly so. Because they have come into existence in the providence of God on account of me and my wife, right? Their father and mother. God brought them into existence through the parents, which is part of the reason why the command is there, you should honor your father and your mother. It's acknowledging the sovereignty of God in these matters. But God has become my father. And it's not a forgettable thing. It is not something I should put in the background of my mind. It is part of the reality of who I am. What are you now? If you have come to Christ, you belong to God. You have been caused to be born again by the work of God. You are a child of God. It's part of my identity. It is something that I can't forget. And, and there's much more to this. As I look back on my life, you know, I think about all the days where, you know, I, yeah, I was in a Christian household. But days and days where I lived oblivious to God, other things of this life were really uppermost in my mind. And yet, through those days, you know, God still thought about me. I was not ever out of his thought or mind. Part of looking back to my youth is really God's providential care in protecting me from many bad things. Even when I wasn't always mindful of him, he was mindful of me. And not only has God the Father uh, become our Father, um, the, the Lord, the, and so this one more verse actually, also in, in, in John 1, 11, and very familiar, he came to his own, the Lord Jesus came to his own people, uh, his own things, his own nation, uh, his own people did not receive him, but then it says, as many as received him, to individuals who received, put their trust in Christ, God gave the right to become his children, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of man, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. The same statement affirmed. God caused new birth in us, caused us to be born again by his work. And it's not just the Father who was involved in this one. And look at the familiar verse in John 3. It talks about being born again. The wind blows where it wishes. No one knows uh, where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So God... The Father's purpose to beget us. The work is affected by the Spirit of God. And I'll give you something even more interesting. You know, um, growing up in the church, we all become theologian, theologians uh, too early. Um, so uh, sometimes, you know, especially in a brethren assembly, in a meeting where people get up and say things that may be theologically a little inexact, right? So one of the things that happens is that calling the Lord Jesus as our Father. But I have found a, a proof text to help those people who address the Lord Jesus as our Father. Now, we saw this last night. It says in Hebrews 2, it's speaking about the Lord. It says, since children share in flesh and blood, he also shared in the same, partook of the same. The one who partook of flesh and blood is the Lord Jesus. It says his children in the earlier verse, in the same passage in Hebrews 2, it says, Behold, I and so this is, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And earlier he says, He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Well, we are brothers, we are children. Well, He's the, 
the, the groom, the church is his bride. All of these metaphors apply to our relationship with, with God, with the Lord. So it's not exclusively one. These all are aspects of love and relationship, and they are applied in relation, in connection with us and Him. So not only the Father is, the God the Father is our Father, the Spirit is also the one who caused us to be born again, and the Lord uh, Jesus views us also as His children, uh, because children uh, had flesh and blood, they were human, He took on human nature. God loves us, He has become our Father. So fundamental to our fellowship, sharing with our Creator, is that we are his children, he has become our father. He called us into his kingdom and glory, he also has become our father. There's more. We can think of life, not just being born, but life. Our life is in God. There's a chorus that goes this way, my life is in you, Lord, my hope is in you, Lord, in you, only, only you. So our life is in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, everything we have to look forward to uh, is in and through him. But there's one particular passage, and again, very familiar, which speaks of this very fact. Uh, it is the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. In John 6, <clears throat> The Lord actually puts it, you know, says the same thing in, in slightly different ways. In verses 33, 33 through 35, uh, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So this is after the feeding of the 5,000. The Lord had just fed a multitude with a few loaves and, and they thought, oh boy, this man is great. Uh, we should make him king because now we'll have a permanent supply of food. Um, no, no more food shortages. Um, and uh, the Lord wasn't, his plan was not quite to go in that direction. Uh, and so it was a question whether they believed him for who he is or not. And then they said, uh, what sign do you do that we should believe in him? We know Moses says he gave them bread from heaven and the Lord corrects him. Them says, it's not Moses, but my father who gave you bread from heaven, manna. But I am actually the true manna who, that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Right? So he says, uh, there's a true bread that comes down from heaven, gives life to the world. Give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And if you read further down, the Lord actually puts it in slightly different terms. He says, I am the bread of life. And he talked about manna. Those who ate manna in the desert, they still died. In uh, verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. We are not only born of God, but our life is through God. And John chapter 6 particularly speaks of this, that we have entered into life because we have partaken of Christ. 
And this is often confused with the Lord's Supper. It's not talking about the, the, the celebration of the Lord's sacrifice and the eating the bread and the cup. Eating Him is really compared to the previous one. Coming to Him. Believing in Him. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. But believing in Jesus is, is so personal. It is making Him part of your life. He is the source of my life. I'm not, he's not merely the object of faith. He is the object of faith, but he's also the source of my life. I live because of him. And he says to me, because I live, you shall live also. Our life, our destiny is all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what is spoken of. Um, uh, I will come to this in, in two verses. I'm sometimes ahead of my slides, you know. Um, the, so in John chapter 15, our Lord compares himself to the vine and the branches. This is our life. We are joined to him, connected to him. Just as a branch cannot be alive apart from the vine, we have no life apart from the Lord Jesus. So every Christian is brought into this Amazing relationship and connection with the living God. He's not simply somebody we think about as being up here. He is with us. Our life happens, our new existence, everything because of Him. Our life is all wrapped up in the person and the work and the grace and the goodness of our Creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are in God. We are in God through faith in the Lord Jesus. And and Bible then challenges me to live in the light of this. And look at the Colossians 3 is where I was wanting to go. It says, you have died. When Jesus died, if you identified with him, you died with him. And the life that really is going to endure for you is hidden with him in God. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, you shall appear with him in glory. My life is wrapped up. In Christ. So this is the amazing, beautiful way of thinking. You know, my destiny is wrapped up with Christ. I'm going to be where He is. And that's what the Lord Jesus said when He left the disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. Why? Because henceforth, your destiny is to be with me. So when we have come to Christ, we have been brought into a permanent, wonderful Relationship, context, destiny, all connected with our Savior and our God. Our life is in Him. You know, our life that began through our faith in Christ, in fact, its workings began before you actually believed. Did you know? If our gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the hearts of those who do not believe, that they should not believe in the gospel. But God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ. In John, the very same John 6 passage, the Lord Jesus says, you have read that it says, they shall all be taught of God. And so whoever has heard from the Father and learned comes to me. 
And when I come to the Lord Jesus, unbeknownst to me, God has already been working in my soul. God has cared for you in more ways than you are cognizant of. He has cared for me in many, many ways, in, in many fall ways than I myself am currently aware. The goodness of God surpasses our understanding. And then God is not only, has not only become our, invited us into his kingdom, he has not only become our father, he's not only our, the source of our life, he's also our companion. You know, so many things that become familiar to us, um, maybe because of the familiarity, uh, they cease to fail to impress us. Um, and here I'm thinking about the fact that um, God really comes into our life and we talk about Christ being in our heart, the Spirit being in us. Think about these. God dwells with you, in you. And, and the Bible, the, the Apostle Paul to the Holy Spirit, in fact, uh, gives it in, in Galatians particularly a, a very strong emphasis. Um, he talks about the Abrahamic blessing. He talks about the Abrahamic blessing. And then he says, by faith you receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, what could you get if God is going to bless you? Blessing we always think about getting, right? If God is going to bless you, is there anything to get more than God? Is there anything that you can think that is bigger than God that you could get? Well, you got God when you believed. God gave His Spirit to come into your life and to be there with you the whole time. Amazing. Amazing. So even more than one person of the Godhead is spoken of as indwelling us. In Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in me through faith. He dwells in my heart. By this we know we remain in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Christ dwells in our heart through faith. God has given us His Spirit. And the gift of the Spirit to every believer is a very strong teaching in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, 12 to 13, having believed, you were, God put a seal on you that you belong to Him, and that seal is the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Him. If you belong to Christ, you have been given the Spirit. God has put a mark on me that I belong to Him by giving me the Spirit. And that is true about every believer. If you belong to Christ, God has marked you. How has God marked you? By giving you His Spirit. But the Spirit is not just a mark only. He indwells us and has got ongoing ministries in us. Right? We are talking about fellowship, talking about sharing. We are talking about having things in common. God is in our lives, in the person of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 15 to 16, God did not give the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit is the one who enables me to cry out to, the, to God the Father saying, My Father. God's Spirit indwelling me gives a sensibility that I belong to God. 
the Spirit testifies to our spirits that we are God's children. And you and I thought that believing was something just in the head, right? We thought that believing, oh yeah, I'm going to change my mind, and you've got to change your mind about truth to, to come to the side of truth. But there are real-life things that happen that God is doing with each one who comes to Him by faith. Real things to change us, to, to encourage us, to transform us, to give us His joy, to give us the hope of His calling and to let that govern our outlook of life. I, I remember... My father is now with the Lord, but it was a story he had once visited a, a friend from his childhood who was very ill, was undergone surgery, had uh, deformed his face severely. And so my father says when he visited him, my father was very, very gloomy. I mean, he was struck by what had happened to his childhood friend. He said, and the man was, was a believer, he said, why are you upset? I am fine. My hope is secure. I know where I am going. So when we come to the Lord, God has a ministry in our hearts to impress us with the truth of His grace and His salvation that changes our outlook of life and our hope concerning the future. And that is accomplished through the ministry of the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. And then there's one more passage here in Romans 8 I would like to look at. <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. How much God cares for me. Sometimes I don't know what to pray for. And Scripture says, the Spirit of God who indwells me intercedes for me. With groanings too deep for words. God has, given, God has given us such amazing grace. He has transferred us from, I'm just going to move on. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. I sort of began with this one. And then, here is a verse from Peter, Second Peter. Says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So just focus on that highlighted portion. Says God has given us exceedingly great promises so that through them we should become sharers. Fellowship word is up there, as you see. So we should become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. God wants us to share in the divine nature. And this is part of the fellowship to which I have been called and for which I have been saved. God wants me to share in His own nature when as as you know, to the extent that it, it, we, we spoke of, of his qualities, of his attributes of goodness, that we are to be partakers. And even more in the fact that he shares 
uh, you know, he, he plans to glorify us and fit us for the realm of heaven. So this fellowship thing is really serious and deep stuff. I mean, God has really entered into our life in ways beyond our full compre comprehension and appreciation. But God has come into your life if you trusted in the Lord Jesus. Only if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus. If you have come to him by faith. If you have asked him to save you. If you acknowledge your sin. There's not a mountain to climb. God says we have all sinned and fallen short. And becoming his child is a free gift. By faith you trust in him. You ask him to save you. You believe that Jesus died in your place and rose again. And you trust him as your savior. He comes to rescue us from death and bring us to heaven, into life. And you lift up your, raise your hand and say, Lord Jesus, grab me, I'll grab on to you. And he takes you to his realm by his power, by his work. Trust him, receive him. And this is our means of salvation. So God has brought us into a tremendous relationship with him. And I want to spend the, a few minutes ahead to think about the implication of this for the present life. What does this mean? Our wonderful new relationship with God, the main implication is that we should live rightly. A wonderful new relationship, connection to God through the gospel should become evident by how we live and conduct ourselves. Have we truly come to God? Do you have fellowship with God? Have you trusted God's grace and His salvation? Have you entered into the new life? Have you come to appreciate those things? Well then, how is it changing you? How is it changing you? So we go back to 1 John verses 5 to 7. Um, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Right? It's a metaphor. God is pure. He is holy. He is light, not darkness. So God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If I say, if we say we have fellowship with him and continue to walk in darkness, that is incompatible with the claim that we have fellowship with him, right? God has called us into his life, into his light, into his goodness. And those things are good, right? <laughs> the things that God, uh, connected with God are good. Righteousness is good. Holiness is good. Purity is good. Mercy is good. Compassion is good. Love is good. So he is inviting us into his light and his holiness and his kingdom. So if I say, I share life with God, then it should show in my conduct. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And I think the one another is us and God. It goes to with each other is another aspect of it. But if we walk in the light because he is in the light, then I can say, yes, I share. But if I'm still living in death, 
then I can say I am sharing the one, the life of the one who is true life. So this is something that we are to consider, right? Everything about God and the life of God is good. It is beautiful. It is healthy. It is uh, it's a blessing. Um, many, many years ago, I, I left um, a mindset of a career of wanting to be a scientist um, and decided rather than do research in biochemistry, I want to study and teach the Word of God. Um, and for all the years that I have spent in study of God, of God's Word, and as one who is interested in carrying out the ministry of the gospel, now in training uh, students at Emmaus Bible College, I have not had one regret. Never felt, boy, that was a bad thing to do. No, absolutely not. It's, it's the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me. And the students we have at Emmaus, they are there because we have the mindset that every believer has a ministry. It doesn't matter whether you are called to uh, elementary school teachers, our students do wonderfully well, or a computer scientist, we have a program in computer science, or business, graduates going to business, counseling psychology, applied mathematics. Our identity and our purpose for living has changed. Now, irrespective of the calling that you have, you are called into his light and to his kingdom and to his glory, and you are to serve God wherever he has placed you. And I have the wonderful privilege of spending most of my time with the word of God. And it's, the, it's the best thing. And I have read plenty of other stuff, starting with uh, you know, things that go back to the biblical time, Mesopotamian literature, uh, all of this stuff. It's not nothing, nothing I have encountered, religious book, secular book, that comes anything comparable to the Word of God in its truth and its goodness. Nothing, nothing. So God has called us into a fellowship and a relationship with Him. And I should live in this new set of associations. And it's important. So it's important that we do not deceive ourselves about our relationship to God. The Bible acknowledges that we are not made instantly perfect. All scripture is profitable, right? It's God-breathed and profitable, among other things, for reproof, correction. So there is a need for these things ongoing in the life of God's people. We are not made instantly perfect. And so this is why also in this passage he will say, if we sin, right, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins. So this is an ongoing thing in the life of every believer. We shouldn't tell ourselves that there's no way out of this. This is not true. The Apostle Paul could say, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. It is possible to go through life with a good conscience, 
that you know you are serving God, that there's nothing that is convicting you that is wrong in your life as you're living today, and if, if there is one, get rid of it. It's simple as that, right? If there is something in my life that I know is displeasing to God, well, stop. Be done with it. Get rid of it. And then he might show you there are other things that you didn't think were wrong. And then you get rid of that. So this is our growth in grace, uh, progress in sanctification. But we are called to the good life, which is in God. And so we ought to reflect our fellowship in how we live. So implications of knowing and being in Christ, and so were these a couple of verses I, I showed, uh, pointed out last night. Uh, whether we talk about we have fellowship with Him, whether we talk about we have come to know Him, whether we talk about I am in Him, I remain in Him, all of these have correlations that we ought to live the new life. So whoever says I know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar. By this we know we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. Our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount points out the same thing. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, that's not from the Old Testament, okay? That's what they were saying in his day, a distortion of the law. The law actually says you shall love your enemy. Where does it say that? If you, if you have an enemy, you find his donkey is lost, what should you do? You should take it back to him. You know, he doesn't like you, but you should still do that. So the law actually teaches us that we ought to love our enemies. If your enemy, uh, if his animal is under burden and fallen down, don't leave him for him to solve him. Go help him. Get the rescue the animal out of the heavy load. So to, to love our enemies is already commanded in the Old Testament. Exodus 20 and keep reading. Um, so you have heard, and so someone in their day was kind of uh, drawing a false um, uh, inverse correlation. So it says you should love your neighbor, so they can you can hate your enemy. It's, it's no, that's not what God says. I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. But here's the important thing: the stuff in blue up there, uh, verse 45. Why should we love our enemies? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Ah. God has become my Father. And the implication is that I should live like Him. I should have His character. If God is my Father, I should be like Him. You know, when we have had children, my wife and I, we are looking for, you know, parts, fingers, oh, they got... They have my hands, now your, your feet, my hands, my nose, your ears. We are excited about those things, even if they are not the perfect shape. Well, God in heaven wants his children to be like him. And that's part of his grace. We have the opportunity, we have the privilege, we have the life to reflect the life and character of God here on this earth. He has called us into his own kingdom and glory. So, we ought to love our enemies so that we may be like our Heavenly Father who is impartial in His dispensing of common grace and giving rain, sunshine uh, to this world. If only believing farmers uh, in Iowa got rainfall and sunshine, we would all be on a quick path to starvation, I think. Right? And then it says, be perfect even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This is the standard. 
So we can't be perfect if you think of perfect as all-powerful. No, we won't be that. But if you think about as being merciful, kind, righteous, just, we should aspire to be perfect because we certainly are hoping to be perfect, correct? Part of our hope is that when I am glorified, when I am made to be like the Lord Jesus in His resurrected body, I will have no more sin, no residual sin left in me. This is our great hope, guaranteed to us. But we are already called to move that way presently. Be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Here are some verses I like to use with one of my classes. I'll give it to you also. Philippians 2, 14 to 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And you say, how is the church ever going to operate if that's the rule? Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that he may be blameless and innocent. Look at the next phrase. Children of God without blemish. You know, I mean, it took me a long while to discover <laughs> verses like this, even though I had read them so many times. What that is saying is that God does not like us to be quarrelsome. God has something about peace. He likes peace. He likes peacemakers. He likes peaceful people. Do all things, so a servant of the Lord must not be, in the, in the pastorals, a servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That is how we act like God's children. All things, don't, don't complain, don't complain. So how do I live without complaining? So many bad things happen to me. Well, think about all the good things that have happened to you. And then, 1 John has many more things to say in this regard, several things about loving your brothers, uh, about living, practicing righteousness. Here's a verse on that, 1 John 2, 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So th think about it like this. Being born again is not just a decision you make in your mind. Being born again is something that happens when you put your trust in Christ. God comes into your life. He has planted a seed. He has caused you to be born again through His work. Your bondage to sin has actually been broken. That's what the Apostle Paul very clearly says in Romans 6. Your bondage to sin has been broken. You are free to serve God. Bring yourself to God and consecrate yourself. Say, Lord, I want to be a child of God. I want to be like you. I, I want to, oh, I remember again, I shouldn't try to sing this old song. Um, I want to walk like you. I want to talk like you. My conduct should be something in line with what is pleasing to you, Lord. 
if you know that God is righteous, those who are born of God should also be those who practice righteousness. You know, the greatest discredit to the gospel and Christianity has been the lack of Christian standards, and I don't mean just ethical morality, I'm just also speaking about justice, the way we treat people on the part of those who claim to be God's people. Some people, a well-known person who has said, I would have been a Christian except for the Christians I knew. See, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And look at the next verse. Everyone who has this hope on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. There's an implication that goes with our fellowship of God. And that implication is that we should walk in the light, just as he is in the light. He has taken us out of darkness and brought us into the light. We should walk in the light. You know, my, my hosts for this weekend have a beautiful house. And I was thinking about uh, a conversation that might go like this, I would say, you know, I like your house. I would like to live here forever. And then what if I followed it up with, but I don't like you. I would never think of saying that. But this is how many Christians think about God. We like your heaven, God. I, I want to be there forever. Great fun. Wonderful. I don't like you, meaning I don't want righteousness. That's tough because God is righteous. I don't want holiness. God is holy. He's pure. If I want to be in house, in his house forever, I should want to be like him. I can't say, I don't like you, God. I don't want this righteousness business. I don't want the holiness business. I don't want the mercy business. I don't want the justice. But I want your house. That's not good. God has called us into his own kingdom and glory. And that call is also an invitation to be conformed to his likeness. May God give us that grace. Shall we pray before the music team comes up? Father, we give you thanks for your wonderful, amazing grace to us. We were in darkness. We are corrupt. Our thoughts, our motivations, our deeds are all, were all contrary to you. But you, in great power, caused us to be born again, to be as your children by your work through the gospel, on the basis of what Christ did for our sake on the cross, by taking our sin upon him, fully paying for our guilt and the penalty, and then triumphing over death. We thank you for this wonderful grace and your salvation. Help us, Father, to appreciate the goodness in you and to value that. Help us to walk in the light even as you are in the light. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.